Welcome to the Next Door Neighbors podcast, a podcast where we talk about all things neighborly. Here are your hosts, Alex and Irina Mazukin. You're so comfortable on camera. Yeah. Well, I'm comfortable on camera because everything is controlled in my environment. Sure. So everything, it's, it's my house. It's, yes. it's, yeah, yeah. I got it. When I go outside of that, people are like, what's going on? And who's he? And yeah. what is that? And, yep. and then you kind of go like, I guess it's in my head because I, I start thinking, am I, you, you have that imposter syndrome where you're like, I, I'm nothing. Yeah. You know, so like when some people like ask me what I do for a living, I'm like, I'm just a guy with a YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But it's so, yeah, I, I, I think if it was Hollywood, hard. right? So yeah. because you have a big crew mm-hmm. and a big crew makes you feel like you're a big thing. It gives you credibility. Yeah, yeah exactly. For sure. Like, like, so yeah, if like, people who walk around and do like vlogs with like a selfie stick, like walk around with people around, like how the hell do they do that? We're already rolling. So yeah. you might as well okay. just pull this yeah. up. Yeah. I like, I, I don't like like cold starts. Yeah. So I might as well. No, that kind of stuff. I'm like, how are they not feeling? I look at that. I'm like, I would feel so awkward walking around. Yeah. Just, you see people pass by. Looking at them, it's yeah, so in California. Do you guys see a ton of that? Because I don't see too much no, of that here. I only, I mean, I honestly, I see no one like that. But I just see channels that are doing that. So that are doing be, maybe that. it's in LA or something. Right, right. I just want to make sure. Am uh, I close enough? Is yeah, good? you're great. Yeah, just a fistful away. Yeah. Um, so uh, it, I've only seen one person. We were at Yellowstone, and there's this couple there sitting right outside of the the national park, and they had the little tripod, this mm-hmm. giant rig set up. And, I, what I could assume by it is like, oh, these guys are like vloggers that are maybe are doing monument thing, like updates. But even as a YouTuber, I was looking at them and I was like, boy, do not, do I not want to be at a restaurant right now where everybody's staring at you trying to figure out what you are. Exactly. But when you have like this credibility, like, oh, I'm on TV mm-hmm. or uh, I have this big production crew, people go like, oh, you're important. Totally. Yeah. No, it instantly gives you credibility if you're recognizable, if you're actually recognizable, that level of public figure status, or you have that crew with you. Right. But if you're just, we did actually run to one person when we were traveling just now. Um, where were we? Oh, we were in, we were in, in Africa, weren't we you? We were in London. Right before we went to Africa, we went to London. You saw Adele. What, oh, the, the bougiest thing was, in the world, dude. That's so cool. The funny thing about that is we the concert was supposed to start at 2, and we thought, okay, there'll be like an opening act or two, and then it'll be Adele. Uh-huh. It'll be like, we'll be out of there at like 5. Yeah. Turns out it's an all-day event. Adele doesn't come on until 8.30. And you were there, what, like 2? We got there at 2, and we have like Jeez. our kids with us. Like, you know, they're <laughs> 8 and 11. They were exhausted. Like, you're just in grass at a park. So we're just all trying to take naps on the grass. Like the girls were so shot and we're still jet lagged from flying there. So you flew in and then right the next day or the same day you're. That was the next day, the next day at two. Yeah. I got to know. And I know we're jumping around a bunch of different subjects, but like you travel so much. Mm -hmm. Number one, do you love it? Love it. You love it. Yeah. I see. I'm such a homebody. Like Mm -hmm. I like being like when we were in Napa. Yeah. I love being around people, but I, it sounds so exhausting when I'm not at home. Um, yeah, I'm starting to change, I feel like, a little bit. Because we, I mean, we've been pretty fortunate um, over the last, like, decade to 15 years to travel. I mean, really, it's been one to two amazing international trips a year. Yeah. Which Kirsten and I are pretty much equally passionate about it. But I am starting to get a point now where I'm like, 20 hours of flying. I don't know if I can do this anymore. Mm-hmm. I told Kirsten, I was like, let's just do, like, Hawaii, Mexico, Caribbean. Uh, like, this stuff of... You know, so for a while we were, before COVID hit, we were living in Bali and for a year, right? We were going to go for six months. Uh-huh. We ended up only being there for two and a half because just not knowing what would happen. But that, I mean, it was a 30 hour flight on the way home and that stuff after a while, you're just like, I, 
don't know if I can keep doing this. Or you need like a solid year break. You need long enough that you forget how bad, how much it sucks. Like a pregnancy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But those places, I mean, whenever I get to those places, I get such a high. I mean, those kind of new adventures like that, there's nothing else that does that for me. Unless it's maybe some really adrenaline packed, like you go skydiving or something like. You don't feel like a fish out of water when you show up to a place and they don't speak your language? I don't know. It doesn't freak me out too much. I think if I was by myself, there was there was a period of time where I had been in Montreal by myself, and that felt a little uncomfortable when everybody's speaking another language and you don't have some buddies or a social network with you. But because we're always together as a family, I just I feel like we move around this little pod, and I don't really interest doesn't affect me. But do you do you get a hit? Because I'm I'm just imagining right now the stress that I'd be on. Because like I would be like, okay, we need to find this place, and I'm trying to navigate the metro system and all this stuff, and then I'm just having this caboose of people. Like it's not like Irene is gonna be like, okay, so I'm gonna try to figure out this. You, we're, we're not divvying up like that. It's gonna be like we're on the island. Dad's also fighting off animals and trying to find food and building a fire exactly. and shelter. Totally. So to me, I don't feel like it's yeah. a vacation. No, it doesn't stress. I don't know why. It doesn't stress me out. Like I. Uh... I just, I guess maybe it's a point now where there's been enough trips that I just feel this confidence of I can figure it out. Uh-huh. And Kirsten's pretty good too. I think the two of us have, we end up kind of working together. It's not like somebody has tasks. We're just like, okay, today we're going to figure out the subway in this city. We've got to get from here to there. Let's just, uh-huh. it ends up, I don't know. It doesn't, it just ends up, it might be stressful for a minute, but in the grand scheme of it, when you look back, it all feels positive. It feels I, like a positive stress. Yeah. And I think it's, so your youngest is eight eight i i I wonder if i'm measuring this under like having a small kid dude that would be way worse because then you're like well we have to get back for the nap and can we find snacks that they like and is there a formula that they you know so no the girls right now that's a huge part of it i mean they're in such a sweet spot where they are just like the easiest people to travel with we'll do those long flights they don't whine about anything they just Mm -hmm. sit there and they'll nap and just I mean, the flight back from Bali, we happened to be, I don't know why, but the one flight was 15 hours with no TVs and they just hung out, like didn't complain. I mean, so, but that wouldn't have been case. I mean, if we tried to do that, like with Harper's age, I wouldn't even try Actually, honestly, when our girls were that age, what would happen is (coughs) my parents are in Montana. They'd come to California because it was a vacation for them. They'd stay with our kids and we'd go on a trip. Uh huh. So until the girls on, honestly, we didn't start taking them with us on these until... Taylor's eight. It was six when she was six. That was our first international trip with them. Yeah. Six is a good number. Yeah. Man. Six. I feel yeah. like you, my, so I, today's my first day. I did lessons for the kids for yeah. golf. Oh and, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, I'm not going to try to teach them. You yeah. Know? And uh, I just got it. But I realized cause Beckham is seven. Mm-hmm. He just turned seven and Jack's almost nine in, in a month or so. And they legitimately were following the rules. Cause with mm-hmm. golf, it's such an intricate thing where you like, you got leg work and hip work and shoulder work and posture and the clubs and how you hold them. And it's awkward in the beginning and yep. you have to teach them how to have that straight back, but arched out. There's and so many little cues. There's so many little yeah. cues, be- whether or not this is going to decide whether or not the ball's going straight or not. And they were like, like, like killing it. And yeah. I was like, Oh, you guys are at a perfect age right now. We can have a conversation. You can follow direction. You yep. can see, you know, uh, I, I'm, I got a man crush on Jordan Peterson right now. And so <laughs> who doesn't, you know, so he's, his whole thing is in the 12 uh, rules of life is like, let teach your kids, let your kids do uh, dangerous things carefully. Mm-hmm. And so it, whether it's wielding, you know, a, a Swiss army knife, mm-hmm. sharpening a stick or, you know, 
swinging a pair of golf clubs. Yeah, <laughs> that's such a good rule. It's it's hard. I don't know if you're feel this way with Harper, but like I grew up with all brothers, and I feel like we had that just the nature of how parents were at that time. I feel like there was a lot of dangerous things that we were allowed to do. Maybe not necessarily carefully. My parents were always working, but you kind of figured it out. And now having only daughters, I constantly think about this of like, I don't want to be protecting them too much and helicoptering too much. And I want to be able to expose them to things that are like the girl's school has this perfect kind of way of labeling it. They call it responsible risks and uh, their school ingrains that in them. And so you know, like I was just talking to the girls about doing jujitsu because I grew up doing martial arts and I was like, let's do some jujitsu. And they're both kind of into it. And I, I just want them to have, whether it's like physical kind of struggle, things that are a little bit, I, mean, I think about like when I was a kid, I rode my bike everywhere yeah, and nobody questioned it. But now it's like, as a parent, you're worried about they're going to get kidnapped or there's traffic. What's going to happen to them? And especially having daughters, I feel like, I don't know. I don't know if I'd be different. I feel like I'd be different if I had boys. I'd be a little looser, but it's it's been a fine it's been a fine line for me to try and figure out what are the right risks for girls since I didn't grow up with that. Do you think it's because we're constantly seeing things happening that are bad in this world? Like I remember there's um, somebody uses great analogy. It's like imagine if you gave a squirrel an iPad and you turned on just National Geographic's of a hawk flying. The squirrel thinks the hawk is constantly over it, right? Totally. So society, I don't think they changed in terms of like safety mm -hmm. since the beginning of time. There's always been child abductions, uh, uh, people indulging in child pedophilia, mm -hmm. all this crazy psychotic stuff. It's always been since the, the Greeks. Totally. I mean, there's it, it's been around the like Romans. So do you think it's just strictly because we're watching news and there's a lot of these fearful stories that people are constantly reading that they think it's... Oh, you know, Edmund Adenger right there. I think so. I don't <clears> think, <throat> I mean, I haven't looked at the, like the data on those specific things really closely, but I feel like everyone talks about who's that guy Pinkerton. It's like that whole book is about how everything's gotten better. Mm -hmm. Like all these different things you can track over human history. Are What's this better. book? Tell me this book. I can't think of, I can't think of his first name right now, but Pinkerton is a researcher and I think he's, it's sort of almost like an epidemiology or like a, almost like statistics of looking at things like murders, like violence, like different crimes over time because people have this perception. I think like you're alluding to, there's so much information now and we, I think as humans tend to focus on the bad probably because it kept us alive. Yeah. But, um, he talks about all these trends of things and how, if you really look at the data, they're all getting better. Like we literally are in the best time in human history for all these different things. But I think what you're saying is so true. I mean, I, you watch these things and you see, you're exposed to it with media now all the time that it almost, you almost end up living out of fear. Like that squirrel example. Yeah. Like yeah. you just end up thinking these are the bad things. I know I think about it all the time. Like these are the bad things that could happen to them. And there's almost an anxiety about I'm going to protect them from that happening, which <coughs> ends up meaning that kids I think have way less opportunities for independence. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, there's like, there's almost like you almost sometimes look at these parents that are like bad parents that aren't ever parenting their kids. I mean, the positive side of that is those kids are really independent and kind of autonomous and they know how to handle themselves. And the reality is, is like, if you take it even back a hundred years, like I just got done with like learning about the civil war, kids were not necessarily, you're going to say like, oh, they're to be seen and not heard, but they were like a valuable thing to the family who were like, they had jobs they went to at seven, you know, at the age of seven. And that what decided whether or not they're going to eat that day. Yep. And they traveled and you know what I mean? It's like they, they had the sense of not only like they're fulfilling their genetic code, like providing for their tribe, but also like they had responsibilities. Mm -hmm. I had the memory of um, 
being in Russia, I was six years old. I, I moved to the States when I was seven, but I was six years old. And, and I don't know if this memory is between five and six or six, but I remember my mom would give us money and say, go to the store and get us bread. And that was, if I was, if my memory serves me correctly, that was about like four blocks one way and then like another five blocks the other way. So all in all, if a block is about, you know, a mile, that's what it was. And I remember that as she gave me that money, I go get a couple of loaves of bread. A quarter of the loaf of bread would be done because I'm picking at it. Like as I'm walking back. Exactly. And that was trusted. Like that was, yeah. that was like a thing. Yeah. Hey guys, real quick. I want to thank the sponsors of today's podcast, Flexil. You know what I love? Tools. Some people would say I'm pretty handy. Flexil has a new campaign out right now that asks the question, are you a toolbox hero? For example, having the ability to replace a light bulb doesn't make you a toolbox hero, but having the tools and the skills to replace a light switch might. Here's what Flexil wants you to know. Toolbox heroes use Flexil family of products because it works. When I look around in my tool shed, I see a lot of tools and maybe some people don't normally have like an auger or for an instance, uh, oversized collection of clamps in all shapes and sizes. But I have also a drill and a driver adapter for a quarter inch, three eighths and half inch sockets. But when it comes to the most reliable, versatile and dependable tools I have around, it's just Flexil family of products. I could trust them to fix anything. You don't have to be a toolbox hero to repair like one. I'm only telling you this because it works and I use them all the time to make stuff as well. If you look at fsp.com, you will find all sorts of blogs featuring creative uses for flex seals from welcome mats to dog houses. Why? Simple, because again, it works. So do yourself a favor, head over to the Home Depot or Lowe's or Ace or Walmart or anywhere Flexil products are sold and pick up a Flexil you need to prepare and repair. Now, let's get back into this episode. Yeah, you think you were between age five and six. Five and six, that's where the memories, because we were yeah. in the States when I was seven already. Yeah, no, I think it's so true. This is the thing I think I actually need to be a little more strategic as a parent because my dad used to drive me crazy with the responsibilities and tasks. I mean, my dad used to, it was very almost like military style. You, he'd give you a job or a task you had to complete and then he'd come behind and check it. And if it wasn't done right, you'd do it again. And mm. as much as I was like this fucking guy, like I can't, I was so pissed at the time, but now I look back on it. I learned so much. I mean, Jordan Peterson totally drives me because I think that I learned a lot of responsibility and discipline from my, it was my stepdad growing up, but it's like that guy, what he instilled in me and I don't, it, it'd be so interesting. He died just uh, earlier this year, but it'd be interesting to ask him. I never thought about, but did he do that on purpose or was it just, he, he always had these jobs, whether it was like shoveling the snow in the driveway or mowing the lawn or like cleaning the garage on a Saturday. There was just, or every night my brother and I took turns doing the dishes and had to clean the kitchen. He'd come check it. I don't know if it was just like, you guys are going to play a role in this family and that's just a part of what we do. Or if he actually thought it through and was like, this is going to be a part of your development and I'm going to integrate this. So you develop and I never asked him like the guy was pretty intelligent. I feel like he must've thought he must've thought through it and thought this is going to help them develop. And he's a social worker. So he was all about that oh, kind yeah. of stuff. But I look back on it and I'm like, cause our girls don't really at this point have dedicated chores. And I'm like, man, I need to, I need to, force them to do some things that push that capacity a little bit and challenge them. Um, you know, life is just so cush, especially yeah. where we're at. Like, dude, you don't in, in Southern California, nobody mows their own lawn. Like you don't do any right. manual labor yard work. Like the stuff I grew up in Montana doing, nobody does that in California. Yeah. Yeah. Have you uh, read that book um, or familiar with the book outliers with Malcolm? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Do you remember the chapter where he was talking about 
this family where she, the mother, they're well-off family, but they were going to the doctor for the kid. I don't know how old the kid was, maybe 11, maybe eight. And she said, hey, make sure, because they're doing like an annual checkup, make sure you come up. The mother's telling the son, uh, make sure you come up with a question to ask the doctor. Mm -hmm. And it was a, a, a contrast because as an immigrant, we were always taught you're to be seen, not heard, don't interject, you know what I mean? Like you're an inconvenience. But what in the book, what's, what, what uh, Malcolm was talking about was, uh, I don't remember how he specified it, but he, he kind of used this terminology of like having some, essentially building into your kids the sense of like healthy entitlement. Mm -hmm. Like you're entitled to be able to have conversations. Mm -hmm. You're not entitled to any privilege, but sure. you're entitled to be part of conversations mm -hmm. if you can kind of keep mm -hmm. up, specifically with adults. And I actually had my first like, took a page out of that book. The boys had their haircuts the other day. And uh, I told them, it was funny because they're the first haircuts I've ever had that we actually paid somebody because I've, I've cut their hair since <laughs> they were it. kids. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, I was like, okay, so they didn't now the age that they have their own style and I can't do that kind of stuff. So yeah. I was like, okay, let's just get a, somebody who knows what they're doing. So we're waiting in line. I go, hey, you guys have to tell your, your hairdresser w what you want. And they're like, can you come? I was like, listen, I'll come. But you need to tell him like what? I, okay, so tell him you want short on the sides, blended, number two, and then just even it at the top. And they're both just like reciting it, reciting it. And so we come up there, and the hairdresser looks at me. He's like, "Dad, so what are we doing?" I go, "Oh, I, I think they're gonna tell you." And so, like to me, I think I was like instilling because of Gladwell's book, not because of my own like wisdom, but based off of his example, I saw me like passing the torch to them. Maybe like. I want you to grow up to make your own independent decisions. Mm -hmm. Look at the world and you can get whatever you want to get out of it. You just have to ask for it. Mm -hmm. And that was like my first real life thing, interaction with the kids to be like, I want to pass this on to yeah. you. Yeah, no, I agree. We, uh, this comes up, our girls, you know, the apple didn't fall far from the tree, but I'm such a, just hardwired. And Kirsten too is a, she's de more extroverted than I, but um, I'm definitely a cautious observer. Like I will tend to lean towards being kind of shy about things. And I was like that as a kid before I'll jump into something, I'll watch it for a while before I'll just jump in and take a risk. And my girls are both like that, especially the older one. So that kind of example, we've been trying to do way more of that because is if Kirsten and I are around, they will default to us answering for them. And so like even restaurants, like just getting them to order for themselves and just, it sounds so silly, but at like a very basic level, it's almost like a responsible risk. It's like, you can talk to somebody and speak for yourself and be an advocate for yourself. Like, you know, if you have needs to voice that and just getting them. And that's where like martial arts was huge for me. Cause I was a pretty shy kid and getting into a situation where there was kind of physical stress and I had to either you're getting choked out or arm barred or something. And you have to, you know, you have to have sort of a game face you can turn on and know how to turn it on in those moments. And man, I just want my girls, especially having girls, I want them to know how to do that. But just to be confident with themselves. I mean, we were talking about imposter syndrome a second. I mean, I've had that my whole life. And I think a lot of people struggle with it the more you learn about it and hear. But, you know, just to have that confidence, like trying to, like you say, kind of pass the torch to the kids and teach them, you know, it's okay to stand up for yourself and voice your needs and but it's a struggle because they always, they just, well, what it actually ends up happening is right now we're on summer break. When we're on summer break, by the end of summer break, they will be much more independent and confident in themselves because we've been out. Tra That's the amazing thing about traveling. Mm. The girls just went to Africa with us. Like they had to do all these things independently 
And dude, the last tent, we were in this tented camp, the most recent one, the whole night, you just hear hippos and lions growling. Jeez. Like there's just interesting, like it's, it puts you in sort of precarious environments. And I think, you know, you're talking to people from different cultures, the girls had to interact with them. These pe people are interacting with them directly and not coming through us. Yeah. So the girls will always at the end of the summer be really way more adventurous and confident. And then we get back into the school year they get into the same safe environment. By the end of the school year, they've kind of, I don't want to say reset back to baseline, but pretty close. Interesting. So it's this, it's, it's really just been in the last few years of Reese will be a sixth grader next year. It's been the last few years of elementary school that we've noticed this pattern that they really become more independent over the summer and then they'll kind of revert over the school year. And so we're constantly trying to kind of harness that and integrate them and integrate that and just, you know, you're just trying to push them along in their development and, it's an interesting thing. I, you never feel like you're ready as a parent. It's like, there's no book, right? You're no, just trying to figure no. this stuff out as you go. And nobody's, there's no guidebook. No, I mean, there's, there's absolutely no guidebook. If, and do you think it's because it's our Western culture that kind of sets up this kind of, and I don't know what the word is for it, but this environment where you just take the back seat and you let somebody else kind of steer the, mm -hmm. your, or navigate your life for you. Cause you're saying like they're traveling yeah. and then they're coming out and they're like, I have to fend for myself in terms of communication. Mm -hmm. And then they go back to stateside and they're back in school and they're like, mom, dad, what do I do? What do I say? Where do I go? Yeah, I do think, I was just trying to think as you were asking that about places we've traveled, because we've been so many places, you know, South America, the, um, you know, Indonesia, Africa, and thinking about how kids interact with adults in those places. And the thing that strikes me is that all the kids in those places remind me of probably what the U.S. was like years ago. In the 60s, right? Totally. Yeah. Like when you were just more independent, and you're, that, like you were talking about, like, yeah you were seen, but not her. It was like, you were just, you were kind of out fending for yourself. Like there were some, your basic needs were met. You had shelter and food at certain times to your parents. But a lot of the day you were helping the family do things and you were just out kind of fending for yourself. And I think kids are more like that, especially because a lot of our travels to, to developing countries, we always kind of enjoy that stuff. And kids are just out doing stuff by themselves. Mm. And there's a lot of potential danger around, you know I mean? There's just, you know, developing countries aren't as safe as it is here. I remember hearing my dad saying this. Um, he said in Russia, because obviously he grew up there far longer than I have, and he said that as corrupt as, you know, Eastern European countries are like Russia, and uh, he said it was interesting that there's almost this unspoken rule of conduct that criminals had, that you don't mess with the old and you don't mess with children. Like that is like off limits, off limits. Everywhere else is like prey on the weak, but you don't prey on the littles and you don't prey on the, the elderly. And I thought that was very fascinating. Like my dad said, even like some of the, cause my dad grew up without a father since the age of nine. So he kind of, he didn't experiment, experience the, the criminal aspect of things, but he, he grew up on the street streets kind of thing where there was nobody there to like, you know, kind of put him in check. And so lots of fights, a lot of hooliganism, even in the midst of that, he goes, there's unspoken code of conduct. Like you don't touch kids. You don't touch the elderly. Hmm. It's a sign of like respect almost. Yeah. You'd have to be like the lowest of the totem pole. Like if you did kidnap a kid, pedophilia or anything like that. 
It's interesting. I mean, it's kind of weird to say it's cool, but it's kind of cool that that's like, even in the criminal world, there's like a code of conduct. Code of conduct. Yeah. And and I guess in the prison system too, I don't know if you heard, you know. I've heard that, that like pedophiles are treated like. Yeah, you're done. Yeah. And then if if, if there's a, a, a an elderly person in the thing, they're kind of like kind of the, the wise man kind of thing. They like get like immunity almost or something. Yeah. yeah. It's like we've created our own animal kingdom kind yeah, of code It's so true. Dude, it is crazy. Like, you know, again, we were just in Africa and you watch nature play out and how brutal it is, mm-hmm. you know, and it you look at how we act as humans and we're not that far removed from, you know, social hierarchies you see with like baboons and yeah. things like that. I mean, we're really not that different, but, um, I'm always struck by that. Like you just look at humans over the centuries, it always just kind of, it's always fascinating to me that like, we think we're so much more evolved, but humans are really doing all the same stuff that they were doing like centuries ago. We're doing all the same stuff. Like there's, you know, like we've got technology that kind of, we can, you know, you can, you can interact and engage with more people than you used to be able to. I mean, there's obviously differences, but at the end of the day, we're still doing a lot of the same stuff. The same exact stuff. I like, you have, like I'm big into UFC. Yeah. UFC is not that different than what the Romans watched. No, it's not that different. No, we we recreated it. Exactly. We studied that pattern. I, um, I'm, I'm in the middle of this book. I'm trying to find this name right here. Uh, The book's called Sapiens, but I'm trying to find out Mm -hmm. who's it by. Uh, It's by Yuval Noah Harari. So he's, kind of doing this interesting thing. I'm very early in this book, but he's doing this like uh, timeline layout and he's starting with like the caveman. He's going to like these uh, Australia Pithecus uh, and he's kind of breaking down what the uh, who's who are the, the guys that study um, fossils and oh, paleontologists, like, yes. right? Yeah. So he, he's he's breaking down based off of their own theories of like what their social structures were. But even in the midst of that, there were like they cherished working hard. They cherished, you know, uh, uh, inventing things. Um, they were, they didn't cherish, you know, children that much. Uh, they had these accounts about a guy killed a kid because the guy was just simply in a bad mood. Like, I don't know how they're picking up. Like, all that stuff still existed back then. So, like, we're just kind of caring. They, they saw community was very important. They had to stay with your tribe. You were entertained by it. Storytelling was very, very important. And it's the same thing here. Like we're talking about, I don't want to jump into this because uh, we're both on social media and we're both content creators. And so we're now like translating, creating stories or telling stories with just technology today. Mm-hmm. Like, and I'm not even talking about movies. I'm mm-hmm. talking about, I'm telling stories with building. Mm-hmm. You're telling stories with creating educational content, how to revive or rehabilitate your body, mm-hmm. which... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. What's your title? You are a physical therapist, but you're a pretty high-ranking physical therapist, right? Well, in the U.S., it's kind of changed. You get a doctorate degree. So okay. pretty much everyone in the last 15 years now, you get a DPT. So it's a doctorate of physical therapy. It's a clinical doctorate. You know, like a, it's different than a Ph.D. like a professor. It's a clinical doctorate. It's like MDs, chiropractors, acupuncturists. Like it's a, Yeah, so you get a doctorate of physical therapy I did a bachelor's degree in exercise science and yeah, I mean, basically just specialize in helping people rehabilitate from pain and orthopedic injuries. Like uh, that, there are different types of physical therapists, but mine is my specializations in orthopedics, which is the common stuff we all get yeah. like back pain, neck pain, disc herniations, rotator cuff tears, plantar fasciitis, all that stuff. So you, it, it's interesting because again, picking back off of what what humans have always done is tell stories. Mm-hmm. You're telling stories now. You're trying to entertain people and educate them at the same time. But the reality is, in the midst of all that, you 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 have to like almost encapsulate that as 
I'm telling a story. Big time. And the story is your body's broken and I'm gonna show you how to fix it. Big time. And I'm figuring out how to keep your attention span along that. Mm -hmm. Like we, we've talked about this for a while. Yep. Um, tell me when that all started for you, when you were like, I went to school, I got a degree in this, it's a very prestigious thing. And then you go, but I want to venture into something else like social media. With yeah. It. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree with you. You're telling a story, you know, and I think there's a number of factors that went into, um, you know, and you know, you know, being in social media, like there's a number of factors that go into why your account is successful, I think. But I had been practicing for probably 10 years when I got onto social media and I had actually gotten on earlier, but deleted my account, man, I wish I had never, like I started originally in 2012 and then deleted and restarted in 2016, the end of Same it. Same name though? Different name. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? Good you know, thing. You had a better Dude, it was name? so good. Way better. Yeah. Way better? What was the first name? The first one was Rehab Scientist, which was very narcissistic and about me. Uh -huh. And then when I went to get back on, it wouldn't let me get it again. So I had to go Rehab Science, which... Uh -huh in my field is the umbrella term of what you'd study to learn about all the disciplines that go into basically rehab. Got it. So it was so much better because that's essentially what my account is now is it covers all these things like anatomy, biomechanics, kinesiology, you know, orthopedic medicine, it's all this stuff. So, but you know, that story idea, I think because I, you know, I was a clinician for 10 years. I had all these patients I had seen over these 10 years. And you know, when you see people, they come into the clinic and they've got a problem and you essentially ask them to tell you their story. Like they sit down, they tell you a story. Like, how did this happen? Why are basically, why are you here to see me today? And that person is going to tell a story. And some people, some people take the whole hour session telling you that story. So you're just, I mean, physical therapy, the more I've been in it is almost really therapy. You know, it's like people have pain and pain is physical pain is not that different than mental pain you know, whether it's de whatever, depression, anxiety, things like that. But, um, you know, someone's coming in, they're telling you a story about how it happened, all the details of that, what they're suffering from now and what their goals are. And that is essentially what I try to do in my posts now. You know, it's like, you're telling a story. You have these, I have these clinical patterns from seeing patients and knowing what the common problems and questions were that people had. And I essentially just took those and turned them into posts. So mm -hmm. whenever... I was listening to Mr. Beast the other day talk about these brainstorming sessions of coming up with viral topics he thinks will be viral. And I had a similar type of brainstorming session, not trying to come up with like, it's physical therapy. It's a, you know, it's a niche topic. I wasn't trying to come up with what will be viral, but I was trying to come up with what are the, I would sit and think back even on the previous day or week. And what are the questions that patients asked me that I should do a post on? Because lots of people ask that question, yeah. which in a way is probably more likely to be viral because it's, but that only came from having that experience. And, you know, I see all these new grads try to start accounts now and it's so saturated and tough, but they don't have that clinical experience. They don't know the questions and patterns. So there was a lot of timing that worked out for me. I just happened to have that right experience when social media started taking off. What and year did you start all the second time around? Yeah. So I, the account I have now, I started kind of all in and being consistent with December of 2016. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I started YouTube January. Dude, I was wondering because I was, I, I've talked to you about this before. I was yeah. like, when you, I, I, you know, you've heard me say this. I'm like, yeah. dude, if I'd only started on YouTube when yeah. I started it on well, Instagram. Well, everybody but, says that. They're oh. like, I had somebody ask me this other day, not ask me, but tell me they're like, oh, it's probably, uh, if you started way long ago, then you're probably more successful. I was like, well, that's not true. Cause I had a guy on a podcast, Bourbon Moth, a season woodwork on YouTube. And he started on, uh, the beginning of the pandemic and he, 
blew past me on YouTube. Wow. Yeah. So it's like he just found his voice. He just had this like kind of British humor, kind of dry kind of thing. He entertained. He didn't even teach people how to build, which is the most creative thing. Is like he learned, he had a finger on the pulse of like, how do I cultivate an audience and how do I speak to them in a different way? And then he created his own way. And apparently there's a lot of people. It's like the people who like to watch The Office. Mm -hmm. You have to have a certain type of sense of humor to watch The Office and enjoy it. Yep. And yep. so he did that with woodworking and it's crazy. I think you just have to outdo people. Totally. No, I same. Like I've seen that because Instagram's kind of we're. it's interesting because you and I share so many things just being content creators. But Instagram has been my platform for all these years. And it's been like you said, during COVID, like when reels started getting big, I saw some guys just take off with reels like that have pretty much caught up to me because they just pumped reels in yeah. the beginning. And, you know, they were tuned into it just makes me think of all these you know, sort of topic, these conversations around whatever, like business and just growth and paying attention to what's going on and evolving and not getting stuck in your old ways. Cause that, to some degree, I was kind of doing that. I got in this thing almost, I mean, I always started out even ever since I was a kid, I wasn't really happy with influencing people on a one-on-one -on -one level. I, I mean, honestly, as a kid, as dumb as it sounds, I just wanted to be famous. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I am a total, I don't know if you do the Enneagram, but I'm a huge like achiever. Like that's my, I, yeah. I, I like, that's why I went to get these degrees. I think I've always been looking for things. And unfortunately I think at its roots, I probably, I think it's, I'm getting better now as I get older. Um, but I think I was seeking out external validation. Yeah. And I think social media kind of was that like probably for a lot of people it is like you're looking at how much people are engaging, how many likes and comments, how many views. And I think in the beginning, in the beginning of social media, when I started, I really was doing it at the base level to help people. I saw, I wanted to influence. I didn't feel, I wasn't happy with going to the clinic and influencing one person at a time. It was killing me. Honestly, yeah. it was killing me. I wasn't going to last in physical therapy. And then I went to education. I taught for nine years at a university and that was like the next step. I was influencing 30 people at a time, something like that. And it was more impactful to me. And then while I was in that job, I started the account I have now and I actually had deleted it for the second time I deleted it. And I had a student come up to me and say, you had a post like on a rotator cuff thing and I, he had exercises and it was really helping my mom. What happened to it? And what happened is I had deleted the account oh, that morning. Geez. So I left class that day and I was like, dude, I need to, I need to like get, keep the, I need to start this up. I need to do it every day because I think this can be a way to help people on a bigger scale. And so I literally went out to the track at the university and rehab scientists I couldn't take because I just deleted it yeah. that morning. Yeah. So then I went, I found rehab science. I started, and I was like, you know, what? I'm just going to be dedicated every day. I'm going to provide a post that's something helpful that answers a common clinical question that I've seen. It's not going to be, because prior to that, my account was a little narcissistic. I would do things like that were sort of about me, like doing box jumps in the gym uh -huh. or something that I thought was kind of impressive that doesn't help anyone. You were the superstar in that, in yes. that, in that field. And yeah. then it transitioned to the focus was on the education and the science and that thing, helping people and I was only in it because I was the person doing the exercises. Mm. You know, it wasn't about me and how cool I am, that kind of stuff. So it was a different, no, having no idea that it would turn into, I remember in the early days, like I remember when I hit 10,000 followers, I was like blown away. I remember I was still teaching at that university and we were going on a trip. With, I was taking some students to Mexico for this trip, this uh, kind of missions trip. And I remember they were with me and I hit 10,000 on that trip. And I was just like, blown away yeah yeah and now it seems so small yeah you know, but uh how many did you have to, uh when you close the account 
The first one, first time around. Oh, scientist. Under two thousand. Under two thousand. Yeah. Because your account is ginormous. You're you're a little bit over seven hundred, eight hundred, eight hundred, eight hundred seventy thousand. Exactly. Right? Yeah. That was I was just looking up. Yep. You're a little bit over that. You're, I, 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 I wonder because you and I we always share stories about like theories and what do you think works and what do you think doesn't work and I I wonder. If it's people who the succeed are the people who are after a, a greater thing than themselves, mm-hmm. like because when I got started, I didn't have the good intentions that you had. Your mm-hmm. good intentions were I want to help people. My intentions were like I want to be a superstar and I want to have this big account kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's why my social media never really took off because it was you could tell I'm narcissistic. Like you could tell I want to be the hero of my story. Um, but you were after like a better like meaningful thing where you're like I want to help people. And I just want to be better and better about communicating to people how to improve their their well being. But dude, I started like you did, right? I mean, I deleted that account. Yeah, so yeah. I should have <laughs> deleted Mr. <laughs> Bill. Dude, you're doing freaking <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it can't be the case. I watch your videos. It cannot be narcissistic. There's no way. <laughs> my you must have transitioned at my, some point. Well, my intentions. Well, I didn't fully transition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's my, another podcast. That's another podcast. <laughs> no, I I I I had different motives. I think in the beginning. We and I, I'd love to hear from your perspective because what's interesting, there's a lot of people who either listen to the podcast or follow me on social media, and uh, they they want to either create a woodworking channel or they want to create a. I guess the better example is they want to create a better life for them where they don't want to work the nine to five thing anymore. They want to kind of carve their own path, and whether it's to start their own business or or do a social media thing or do a YouTube thing, it, it it's always different. But I think there's people who do things for the wrong reasons. And I think, so when you and I open up this podcast, we're talking about people holding up cameras, you know, at the store vlogging. I wonder if those are the people who go, I don't know what I want to do in life and I don't want to do the traditional thing. So I just want to be social media famous. So I'm willing to overcome the sense of awkwardness and just lug around this big camera in this awkward spaces Mm -hmm. of stores and do like those, some of the channels where they do prank videos mm-hmm. and endure that awkwardness where I feel really shitty about my personality that I did this to another human being just for the sake of success. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, and at the end of the day, I don't think those people will become, it's highly unlikely they won't be successful because I think you have to have some sort of root motivation that's not, it's probably not. I mean, maybe it could be being famous. Maybe that drives you enough. But you and I both know, like, consistency is, like, there's a certain, like, there's, there's, I mean, it's, there's a combination of factors, right? It's like right place at the right time, having enough experience in whatever you're talking about. I mean, there's lots of people who don't really have experience in things and they're just creative. But I think consistency is huge. And I, I don't think you're going to be consistent unless you are, like, diehard passionate about, like, I, the stuff that I end up writing about. And I mean, obviously I have times where I kind of lose energy on this stuff. You know, when like the last year, even the algorithm, like things change and it's not as easy as it was at one point. And you have these expectations of how it should be. But at the end of the day, I am never going to lose the passion I have for the content that I'm interested in and using that to help people on a large scale. So I think I didn't start, I had no idea that this stuff could be a business. That's never why I started it. I mean, I think like I was saying, I had this like desire as a kid to be famous 
and known by lots of people, but I didn't think that Instagram would do that. I didn't get on social media. I, I just, maybe I wasn't paying attention. I don't know. I mean, it, it seems like, I mean, you and I started around the same time and you were thinking about that. I didn't realize like at the, when I started Instagram, my wife had an Instagram account and she just put up pictures of her family. And I literally thought Instagram was just to put up pictures for your friends and family. I had no idea that it could go beyond that until I had that conversation with that students that it could influence other people. But I had no idea that it could achieve the sort of personal fame thing that I cared about. I really was doing it with the deep desire of helping people on a large scale. And I, and now I have to be honest as it's gotten bigger and there's more people tell me all the time, like you need to make money doing this and it should, you know, like there's this pressure outside pressure of this should be a business and you should think about this. And I, I agree. I mean, it's a, it takes time and why not capitalize on that? If I'm spending time on it, help people and have it, you know, having to be in some other job, like working in a clinic takes away from the quality of the content I can produce. So if I can create quality content and it pays my bills, like why not try and shoot for that? But in the beginning, I never thought of that. It was never, it was never, I never had any idea. It's so weird, right? Like in six years or seven years, whatever this is like now a job can be an influencer or a YouTuber. I don't ever remember hearing about being an influencer in 2016 when yeah. I started. Yeah. I'm sure there were people thinking about it, but I had no concept. It was literally just, I'm going to do this and put out helpful things. And then it grew and grew and grew. And then those things became, then I started thinking like, oh, maybe I really should try and pursue this. Like I enjoy making content. I enjoy teaching about these topics and educating people. I knew that when I was at the university and educate, educating people on that level. But this was even better because I could educate way more people and have, and do it on my own schedule, be totally autonomous. Yeah. So now that's, I'm kind of in this process now of like making this really like, I mean, I still see a few patients, but the ultimate goal is like, this is my full time kind of where you're at, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's like, this yeah. is my full-time business uh, content creation yeah. is replacing that income source from everything else. Well, I think people forget or they don't allow themselves to realize the fact that the amount of energy that it takes to think of ideas, think about how to present them the best way, film them, then present them, then interact with the, uh, that's a full-time job. It's a lot. It's a hundred percent a full-time job. And people need to understand that. And people need to, whether or not it's the, the creator or the, the people who are consuming the content, it's, you it's not free. It's because somebody has to pay the bill and yeah. that's you always, exactly. you're going to give up sleep. You're going to give up, you're going to work two jobs. So in the middle of that, like it's when people say, well, I, 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 why, you know, if I'm, you know, already doing it, why not maximize it? Like, no, you should a hundred percent do it because it sounds like you're passionate about it. If you're passionate about teaching people or educating people, you should a hundred percent pursue it. And there should be no excuse about it because the amount of effort and energy and brain bandwidth that goes into that, it, it will break you. Like when I started looking back of in 2016, when I did start this, like I'd have these conversations with Irina about it. I was like, did I work two jobs? I feel like I did work two jobs, didn't I? Because yeah. here I am, I'm going, okay, uh, full-time here, full-time here. And then people go, when did you go full-time? Well, it's like, well, technically a full-time means to you that I'm only working one job. Well, then technically I went full-time only two years ago, mm -hmm. but I started this in 2016 and I always put out one video a week back mm -hmm. then. 
Yeah. And so when I'm giving up like kids t-ball games and sacrificing all this stuff and sacrificing sleep, like I was trying to build this thing up. So technically I've been full-time for a very long time and just nobody paid me. Yeah. No, people don't get it. Yeah. I totally agree. People ask all the time. I'm sure you get this all the time. It's like, Hey, I want to get into this and do this. And you start to lay out for them. Like yeah. people don't get what it takes. Yeah. Like they don't get it. They think they just see a post or a video and they think, Oh, that's easy. It's only whatever. Like maybe it's a, a video. My videos on YouTube are six to eight minutes or something. They look at that and they think that's not a big deal, but they yeah. don't have any idea. I mean, just the time you spend thinking about topics and I don't do nearly as much editing as you, but like the thinking about the topic, like writing the post, doing a research, like for mine, I've got to look at research studies really. I mean, there is a lot. If you took, if you looked at the amount of time my brain is thinking about what I'm doing for content creation in a day, it's way more than I spend thinking about my patients and what I'm doing in the clinic. Yeah. But it doesn't. So, I mean, that's, I hit that point. Exactly. You're saying I hit a point where I was like, I am spending the whole day thinking about this it's stupid if I don't figure out how to generate some income from this, I can still help people generating income will probably mean that I can help people even more because yeah. make better videos, yeah. you know? So, yeah. and if that were to all go away, it'd be a disservice to people because I, that content, I mean, it educational content like this for people who are in pain and injuries, I get comments from people all the time. Unfortunately, it's really sad for my profession in a way, but people are like, I went to physical therapy and the stuff you're providing on whatever social media platform is better than what I got in physical therapy. And, wow. you know, I mean, I was just talking to, I'm in the middle, right? Almost just finished the manuscript on this book I'm writing with the publishing. And I was just talking to the guy, the ghostwriter, co-writer with me. And I was just talking about this morning about how broken kind of the healthcare model in the U S is and rehab is totally there with it. That people just don't get good quality care in most instances. It's not that physical therapists aren't trained well and know what to do. The interventions are really helpful, but people just don't, they don't really have access to that high quality care because of how insurance reimbursement, things like that affect the way clinics have to structure the model of care. They have to, they have to cut things. And that usually means cutting time with the person. Mm. And so unfortunately people, it's obvious people aren't, and then, you know, some people live in countries where they, that's not, physical therapy is not even a profession. It's not a thing. Huh? Or it's so expensive. Like I have a ton of followers in India. They can't pay to do any of that stuff. Yeah. So what they can get, it's amazing to see social media platforms and things just like basic movements and exercises. Cause essentially my posts are, they're nowhere near what an actual session is. Yeah. They're not customized or personalized to you and your symptoms at all. They're just, it's just an example of exercises that you might be prescribed for that condition. But it's amazing to see how many people get better from just that stuff. Do you think, tell me what's your insight as, um, uh, in, in your field of work, what's your thoughts on chiropractors? This is like asking no. Alex Jones about aliens. <laughs> no, dude, I, I actually don't mind answering this because I think the chiropractors online think I hate them because <laughs> every physical therapist do is chiropractor. I don't, I have so many chiropractor friends that are legit evidence-based, like awesome chiropractors. Okay. I mean, honestly, there's a, there's a ton of them out there. And I think some of it boils down to what school of thought they're kind of trained under. There's different schools of thought and, um, and I'm not an expert in their education, but it seems like that's kind of the case. I mean, I had a lot of students who went to chiropractic school who were kinesiology students and Dude, there's a ton of chiropractors that are really good at empowering patients and helping teach them how to self-manage the issues they're going through. Because at the end of the day, that's what the research says you should do is you might work on people, 
manipulate them, adjust them, whatever, do massage temporarily. That has short-term evidence. But at the end of the day, we should be teaching people movements and exercises and behavior modification that teaches them how to manage their own issue long-term on their own. And there are plenty of chiropractors uh, that do that. Physical therapy tends to be a little more geared that way because it's more exercise, movement kind of based. Strengthening yeah. weak muscle groups. Totally. And that stuff, honestly, like resistance training has the best evidence for keeping your muscles. Think of it. It's a, it's a mechanical musculoskeletal system. Like that system stays healthiest when you strengthen it. Yeah. Um, so there, but the, in the practitioners that really frustrate me, and unfortunately I think there's more chiropractors and acupuncturists and things that fall into this kind of bucket where they, they give, they tell people these things, they kind of, um, they use these narratives that convince people they create dependency. We're like, you have to come back here on a somewhat frequent basis to stay healthy. And that stay bothers alive. me. I can't stand that. I, shit. I only visited one chiropractor when I tweaked my back and he gave me one adjustment. And it was great. Yeah. I felt 30% better. He yep. gave me a second adjustment. I felt 100% better after it all healed. But then he said, let's get you on a schedule after this. And I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. If that's not broken, why am I coming in? Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly the thing that frustrates me. It should be because that stuff like manual therapy has great evidence in the short term. And that's what it should be. It should be like this. It should be like a boost that gets you over the pain hump. Like dislocating, like a dislocated thumb that you put back in place. Exactly. You put it back and then you might have, you might change. Maybe you have behaviors in your life that are whatever. Like maybe it's predisposing you to some pain or injury and you adjust those a little bit. And then you have some exercise and movements you add and you can strengthen the area. You can make it more mobile, whatever. But it shouldn't be, you just need to come back and keep doing this even if you feel good. Mm. Like that's just total bullshit. There's no evidence to yeah. support that. So that, that stuff, and I can get on, like you probably, I get on rants about this stuff. It's, it was honestly one of the biggest factors that got me into social media because I had patients coming in, telling me this stuff. And it just, it like infuriated me that, um, people were led to believe that they had to go back to see someone. And I knew that person was only doing it to pump their business. Like, and I've said this in posts before that if somebody's doing this to you, they're probably more interested in their bank account than they are in your health. You know, and that's, so you have to, I think, so again, it's not, there are PTs that are like this too. There's PTs that are very, it tends to be these practitioners who are very hands-on manual therapy focused because they have to do that to you. And if they have to do it to you, it seems mad like a magical fix and they can create dependency with that. Interesting. So what are your thoughts about, I recently had somebody tell me that if you are leaning over, trying to touch your toes and trying to stretch like that, uh, that it's detrimental to your back and the way your spine bends. Is that true? No, there's uh, this is a thing that comes up a lot. Like you hear it with deadlifting and lumbar flexion, uh -huh. you know, lumbar flexion is essentially when your back rounds and you bend over, there's really no evidence to, there's been a number of studies looking at this on postural positions of the spine and injury risk. And there's really not a st strong correlation there. I still will say though, however, like, so look, when you, bend over just with body weight, it's normal biomechanics. Like your spine, your pelvis, your hip, your pelvis, and your spine, they call it lumbopelvic rhythm. It's all goes together. So like when you bend over, you get hip flexion, you get anterior pelvic tilt and your spine goes into flexion. It's, it's normal human kinesiology. Like you're, you're, we're built to do that. Yeah. So it, that in itself with body weight is not an injury risk. It's not something you should fear, but a lot of people are a lot of people do fear that movement pattern. It's interesting. If you look at movements in the body, that particular movement pattern is one of the most feared, mm -hmm. you know, and I think there's a lot of people who have been injured like that. Like if you look at that system under load, this is where it gets a little more like the nuance. There's a little more nuance to it. Like if somebody's deadlifting 
same kind of position, they're under load. You do see kind of data and things related to, and even in the clinic, just anecdotally, if you look at most people who've had low back disc herniations, they tend to be in a bent over position. They might even be rotating a little bit and then lifting something. Ah. Like the last guy I had was trying to take the trailer off his hitch on his truck. Uh-huh. He's bent over and he's kind of jerking it and then ended up having this disc injury and got sciatica and all this stuff. So you do tend to see people who get injured in that position. So I will still tell people it's all about the message, like in the narrative, it's all about, it's so important. Um, the messaging that you give to people who have pain and injuries, you don't want to create messaging that creates instills fear and anxiety. Cause even though you might be thinking this position potentially poses more risk to this person based on their history or just whatever, you're still trying to educate the person, but not create that fear. I mean, so I will tell people when they're lifting, like if they're a novice lifter and they're going to go do deadlifts for the first time, like I'm going to tell people, yeah, keep the load down gradually. That's just a, that's just a, that's a normal, it's just progressive overload. Like if you're strength training, you know, like you gradually increase weight and you get stronger. So if you're new, you start light and I'll tell people, even though the data may not will be kind of mixed, I'll still tell people like, yeah, try to keep your back in neutral. Like try mm. to keep your back straight when you're learning. But there's plenty of power lifters and big time lifters. You watch like World Strongest Man, they round their back like crazy when they lift stuff. It's funny you said we we had the World Strongest Man on the podcast. Dude, Robert Reverse. Yeah. Dude, you look at like the, when they're doing like what's the one with the stones? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They pick, I don't know what it's called, but yeah, they pick up stones. Their back all. is rounded around the stone. Like that's <laughs> yeah, pure lumbar flexion. Over. Is there a way? So let me ask you this with adjustments. So it seems like, okay, you've. You've corrected my understanding of adjustments because, yeah, it's you put it back in place like you dislocated a thumb. It's not even back in place right. with adjustments. It's not? No. What is it? There's no evidence to support that either. What so, is it? What are they doing? Just popping the, the yeah, nitrogen or whatever they call it? In, it's in, like this complex. This is going to sound really stupid, but they now just refer to it as a complex neurophysiological mechanism, which sounds like you're not answering my question. No, it's a lot of <laughs> <laughs> But it's different than dislocating your finger. Like if you dislocate your finger, the bones come apart and you're literally putting the bones back Correct. in alignment. In the spine, they haven't proven that. So, and maybe it's we don't have the technology to measure it. That could be. But it does, you know, like if you pop your knuckles, like you pop your knuckle, yeah. do you really think you're putting your fingers back? In no, but I always thought that's like the nitrogen gas or whatever the gas is around. That, popping around. that is true. Like that's the thing they talk about now in the spine because your facet joints. So in your spine, you have these little facet joints that hook one vertebrae to the next. They're about the size of the knuckles in your hand. Like when you pop your knuckles, when yeah. you get your spine popped, it's essentially the same thing. Uh-huh. So they kind of, they refer to it as a pressure change in the joint and your joint capsule, which surrounds the joint has all these nerve endings in it. And those nerve endings have sensory fibers that go to your nervous system. And so they essentially think now that when somebody's in pain, say they have low back pain and say you have muscle spasm around that, if you pop the joint, there's something that happens. You, you provide this novel input into those nerve fibers in the joint capsule. So when you pop the joint, there's this pressure change in the joint that affects the joint capsule, which surrounds the joint and holds in the synovial fluid. Uh-huh. So if you st- kind of give a quick stretch, it's basically a quick stretch. Like you think about somebody popping your back, they kind of twist you yeah. and then kind of jump yeah. on you. Yeah. It's like a quick, it's really just manipulations are referred to as high velocity, low amplitude. So it's fast and it's low amplitude and it uh-huh. creates a pop uh-huh. and that stretches the joint capsule and that stretch to the joint capsule is thought to send sensory feedback to your nervous system. And that changes the pain experience. Kind of like slapping the thing and be like, knock it off. Exactly. Interesting. Exactly. So it's like you do that, like if you burn your finger or hit it on something, well, we'll naturally kind of shake our hand. Yeah, and yeah, move. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's another way of kind of using your motor system and your nervous system to kind of almost like distract or lessen that pain experience. Interesting. So, you know, a manipulation is probably more complicated than that. But, um, you know, essentially they 
it's something happening in the nervous system. And when you manipulate someone, it can cause this temporary relief in pain and even mobility. Mm -hmm. And some people, like, I don't know what your response was. Some people that will just carry on and they only do one and they feel better. Mine was two and I was a hundred percent back. Exactly. So you get all these variations and I think it depends on your history with how many times you've had like a back pain, um, how acute you are in it, what time you, when you get the manipulation, but those interventions can for sure be helpful. There's also a huge part of it. That's like beliefs, like, Uh, because look, you're voodoo and some, well, dude, just like if you go into a practitioner, I studied this, I was doing a PhD at Texas tech uh, for five years and looked at, um, the messages that clinicians give to people and how that influences expectations and beliefs. If you go into something like this has been studied a lot with medicine. If you go in and you get pills and they've shown that like a pill that's translucent where you can see through it and you can see like the stuff inside is more effective than one that's like a homogenous color. Cause you're focusing on it. Yeah. Like, yeah you, you, it changes good. like a belief. Like people will believe things or like the shape of the pill, like a square pill versus like a round pill. It will change people's beliefs about how effective that pill is mm-hmm. and that will influence their symptoms. So the same is really true of manual therapy. When you pop someone, we all like that. Like when you get popped and something's popped, you instantly feel like, oh shit, that's going to help me. It's it's fixed. Yeah. It's going to fix it. Yeah. Like I heard a pop, we're done. We're good. So there's a huge part of that. Like not only is something happening to your physical tissue that influences your nervous system, but you also as a like conscious being that is intelligent, you see like the practitioner did something to me. They're excited about it. I'm excited about it. That influences that downward stream of pain. Oh, interesting. So, you know, they try to do these studies now where they do like sham manipulations and they've done this where they take a recording of that popping sound Yeah. and they pretend like they're popping somebody, but they play the recording and yeah. people have almost equal outcomes in really? pain to not to the people that were actually popped. I recently went to go get a back massage. Um, and, uh, the, I just, I just called in and I was like, Hey, do you have somebody with like really strong hands? And she's like, yeah, no problem. We'll put you somebody for, I'm expecting like this big Siberian girl that's going to just like <laughs> break, make me like cry. But uh, no, I showed up just like a scrawny little girl, uh, gal, and she was like, hey, I'm so-and-so. I specialize in uh, energy healing. And I go, oh, geez. And I go, what's that? Waste of money. <laughs> yeah, I go, what's that? She goes, well, I put pressure on your body. And then uh, to see what the reaction is, I that that's the stuff, the part of the body I'll manipulate to. I was like, all right, whatever. Like, as long as you have good energy. And the only thing I noticed, she wasn't doing any, like, hand hovering or manipulations, but... The only thing I noticed is she was using her knuckles, like the the, the yeah. second knuckles on her uh, on, on her uh, hands, and she was like basically rubbing the deep tissue, and that was the only part that I was like, well, you could just say like you're working on like the deeper tissue kind of manipulation, like that's fine, but don't call it energy thing. But to me, I go, oh, I'm gonna be next level after this. <laughs> it like, sounds fancy. It sounds so fancy. No, that's an example of a practitioner, whether she's doing it intentionally or not, yeah. taking advantage of expectation and beliefs. Because you can make up like magical shit and get people excited and do the same technique that every other person's doing. I mean, this happens all the time in the rehab world. Like you just take a bunch of cool sounding anatomy terms and you put it together and make up a new practice. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to adjust your aura. Yeah, exactly. Okay? People get excited. Like Please. You, you charge like 1500 bucks a session and everybody comes in for it. No, it's stupid. This is the stuff that wasn't what the original uh, chiropractor. And I've only heard it through a podcast, but wasn't like the original guy who started the, the, the science of chiropractor was like this, like, uh, uh, guy that tried to fool people. I don't yeah. I'm, you know, don't quote me on this cause this history, I'm going to, there was some original, I think some of the original, um, 
origins of chiropractic were cases where I want to say there was one where somebody had tinnitus, which is like this ringing in the ears and someone had a manipulation of the neck and it helped to change that, Oh, you know? And so I don't quote me on that though. Like I, the history of chiropractic is not something I know super <laughs> well, but, uh, um, you know, I think, and even that type of thing, it's interesting to look back at that and be like, did that guy who had that change in symptoms, right? It's a, it's an N of, it's a, it's a, it's a single subject kind of case that was reported, which is one of the lowest forms of evidence It's still important. Like case studies are important. They, cause a lot of times practitioners, we talk about like practitioners who are in the trenches treating people every day. A lot of times they make the new discoveries and it takes science a while to catch up to it. Yeah. So I don't, I always try to kind of, st- I'm a naturally skeptical kind of person who tries to use the research and evidence, but I try to stay open-minded and you know, um, and there would probably be people online who disagree with that and think I'm just a piece of shit. And <laughs> like, <laughs> it, no, it, people, I get in arguments all the time. It's like, you can't on social media understand the nuance of someone's like what they actually do. Like yeah. it's just the posts don't cover. It. It's not comprehensive enough, but what, what are your DMS like as a practitioner? Dude, my DMS are all just help me. Oh, that's it. That's they, it. You don't have people being like, Hey, you know, I, my case studies, I'm a, so like, let's say they like one up, you'd be like in terms of like ranking or whatever. They're like, uh, we, we see evidence in this. You don't, you don't get none of that in the comments. In the comments. I get that in the comments, but my DMS are literally all help me. Yeah. I have this problem. Help me. And I can't respond to everybody. It's yeah. way too hard. Like I unfortunately just, I just can't respond to all that stuff. It's, and you know, and again, it's people who are in countries that they don't have, I mean, I'd love to get to a point where this is how, where I'm again, kind of like replacing my income with just this. And I could really spend the time almost as like pro bono because I do have a heart for that, like pro bono care where I'm just helping people that are underserved and can't afford it or don't have access to it. I'd love to be able to spend time just respond, like have a window where I respond to people who can't pay for a program or can't sign up for a consultation or whatever. And it's built in that I can spend enough time doing that, but it's just not at the point right now. I can't, I just end up deleting most of those. Well, I mean, you should not do any of that pro bono. Cause I think it takes so much of your time and so much energy. And, um, especially that you established your place in the algorithm of the content that you create. And it's incredible content. And I think you should keep putting it on YouTube. And I think you should for sure put it behind a paywall, like a Patreon where it's like, you know, you have, you know, a small $5 thing for extra content, or you have, you know, a $50 package where you're like, I will do a 15 minute zoom thing with you and, and just hear a little bit more about you. Like that, that's just, those are so many avenues. What are your, before we start wrapping up, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I love talking to you because you are in the headspace of content and there's not a lot of people that I know locally that are in that and you're Likewise, in California, yeah. I'm Idaho. Yeah. And so it's so fun to just uh, exchange ideas mm-hmm. of what has been working for, let's say me in terms of storytelling, what has been working for you. Do you have any theories about uh, approaches, what you think you're going to be doing differently as this whole metaverse and technology expands in terms of how are you going to present the storytelling of creating this kind of content? That's a hard question. Quick, easy question. <laughs> Quick sign off. Dude, I want to hear what your response is. No, and is. I'm going to ramble on as this, oh. this next weekend as we go to the to, yeah. to camping. Dude, you have short. so much foresight on these things. I literally sometimes feel like I talk to you and then I know what I should do next. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm i just trying to keep up with like, I, 
I don't know how you know the things you know, but I feel like you have such a good mind for predicting where things are to go. I mean, honestly, I want to, I can't wait to pick your brain on what you think, but I, I feel like I'm this slow evolver and I just kind of am trying to keep up with the times and mm. what happens with it. I don't have a good idea of, you know, I could see, and I've talked with buddies about this before, kind of on the innovative side, and you see this starting to happen in physical therapy, and maybe this goes down the lines of what you're talking about of, you know, I think I'm so motivated, you know, so much of the research and what I do on my platform is trying to teach people how to use movement, exercise, and behavior modification to self-manage their own issues. And then you sprinkle on a little bit of manual therapy when you need it, the manipulations or whatever mm. to, but it, uh, I think, and even during COVID when people were isolated so much, you could see the power in those kind of self-guided self-management kind of strategies. And I think I would imagine like with the metaverse and as people become more sort of integrated into technology, I could see a place for, almost like where you could come into this digital universe and have something like a video game system, you know, and they're already doing this, but they're like, doing boxing, they're doing all dude, this stuff. Like, yeah. well, and they have these ones that will um, analyze your movement. Mm. So like rehab, like the kinesis, I think is, I don't remember that, what system that's with, but there are apps and programs where you could have a shoulder issue or something and you can stand in front of this thing and go through your range of motion like you would a physical therapist and it can measure you and figure out where your impairments and deficits are Oh, interesting. and then help you design a program. So you're, you know, I feel like this isn't probably perfectly what you're asking, but I think just in this age of technology, there's the opportunity for more of these solutions that don't involve actually going to see a practitioner, but are almost like these decision tree type technology things that can analyze you and then give you a path forward that, probably in 90% of cases is going to be the right thing. And then if that doesn't get you better, you go see someone. There is a, um, <clears throat> and this is, I don't know if this already exists um, in terms of rehab worlds, but there is potentially opportunities for this. The, there's a, a, a contraption called the Garmin R10. It, it's this little thing that looks like a black screen, probably four by four square thing, no display on it. It's got a little small little tripod legs that are a couple inches long. You set it up in front of you and you take a couple of golf swings, you download the app, and it analyzes to a, a, one one hundredth of, of a degree or a second of your power, your stroke, your slope, your, you know, what you're doing in such a micro adjustment. And it's like 500 bucks, it's not that expensive, but it, it does that. So I wonder if that same technology applies towards like rehab stuff, like you said, in a metaverse, where you pay a subscription, you join this thing, the, you already have all these cameras, they do an analysis of you, and then you have this, remember how back in uh, Microsoft Word, back in like, 20 years ago, it pops up, there's this little ping thing, yeah. it gives you like tips, yep. and yeah. how to do, like, you have this little totally. rehab scientist that totally. comes up and be like, you should do this, you strengthen your... It's just on all the time, you walk by the TV, and it's like, oh, you got a problem right there. There's a, a problem with your gate, I uh -oh, see a problem. We're about to hurt her back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> No, dude, I think that stuff, I uh, used to run a clinic that was a biomechanics. It was a clinical biomechanics lab, and we used high-speed cameras, force plates, EMG. We could measure up muscle activity, all that stuff. I mean, you think golf is so much more complex than a lot of, like, walking. Like, yeah. walking is complex, but it's, like, this very linear, it kind of stays in one plane of motion for the most part. It's generally less complex than, like, a golf swing. 
And like places like Golf Tech, I remember we had Golf Tech like in California, like you come in and they analyze you. It's the same, essentially it's the same biomechanics setup we used in the clinic just for a golfing application. Yeah. And to be able to do that on yourself at home, I think that stuff is just, it's inevitable that it's gonna happen with rehab. And people will just turn these things on. And I don't know if that's the metaverse. You got to tell me. I don't know what the metaverse. Like, I still don't understand. Like, hey, listen, I got to he- buy some real estate by Snoop or something. <laughs> <laughs> right after the NFTs. I think, and I swear, I, and I reached out to you. I always tweak my static nerve. And I, uh, you gave me some stretches. And I swear I was so close to calling you and be like, hey, is, can you get on a Zoom thing on a FaceTime and show me how to manipulate my back? Because totally. I was at Yellowstone for a week doing every stretch possible. It just wouldn't get better. It wouldn't get, but it, it finally did. Mm. But it was such a slow progression that I knew that if I could just get in with somebody who could manipulate my back, I'm sure based off my first experience, just I'd be back. Totally. So I was like, I was so close to be like, hey, man, where do I need to put my body so my my, my wife just put pressure and <laughs> we're back into it? Dude, it's, it's crazy how popular that you say that. Like I started during COVID doing these Instagram reels that are basically partner massage and mobilization techniques. Those things like just blew up. They were crazy. It's... It's amazing because the the thought that goes into deciding what technique you could implement with someone, there's a bunch of background and history, and that's mm-hmm. where the education kind of goes into it. But the actually carrying out the technique is not that complicated in most cases. So like something like that, you could easily hop on as, because that's where manual therapy really comes in because you can do all these exercises and stuff, and things will, most musculoskeletal things will get better with time. But manipulations, manual therapy, massage, that stuff just speeds it up. And sometimes you just need it to kind of get over the hump. So I'm always telling patients and you can teach it to like spouses. You can. Oh, dude, there's so many things. I mean, manipulations get into a little bit grayer area, but they're largely like super safe. Like you look a lot of these days, like doing a low back manipulation is safer than taking like an Advil. Like really? people have you, this You're idea. not going to do more damage then? No, really. If the neck is a little, sometimes the neck carries a little more risk with it, but people think because you're being twisted quickly and that it's really dangerous, the danger with those types of things is so low. Really? It seems scary to people, but it's literally, it's literally like popping the knuckles in your finger. None of us stress about that. You're going to have to teach everyone how to do it. That's, <laughs> like, I literally, my right sciatica is like twice a year. Dude, it's not Just because I carry stuff on my hip. You know what I mean? Like that's why I... Sometimes it's hard. Like if, I mean, if she gets the technique down, Kirsten can never do it on me Uh because it's just the size of her. But like, it's sometimes you need somebody a little bit bigger to do it, but you can teach people. I mean, maybe she can figure it out. I mean, there's plenty of small therapists that are really their techniques, like just on par and they can, it's, it doesn't hurt to teach her. Like, yeah, for sure. I mean, obviously like online and things I try to be careful with liability and all yeah. that. Yeah. You it's don't like as be... a health, it's like, yeah, as a healthcare practitioner, it's like, you're always walking that line. But at the end of the day, those techniques really technically aren't that complicated. It's just choosing when is appropriate to implement them and when's not like somebody has ongoing back pain and you just keep doing manipulations and it turns out they have spine cancer. Yeah. Bullshit, like you chose wrong and yeah. now you may have, you know, impacted them negatively forever you know Jeez. so it's 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 more of that kind of stuff of choosing when it's appropriate when it's not but anyways yeah. well tom uh i appreciate you coming on where can people find all your stuff i know it's rehab science on instagram anywhere yep. else yeah rehab science on youtube and then i facebook is funny it's still rehab scientist um yeah so those are kind of the main ones for me and then uh i i just have to mention this really quick because i'm really excited about this book that i'm working on is going to come out next april and dude it's going to be awesome it's 500 pages it's a textbook size this this publishing house i'm working with specializes in textbook size kind of books but it's a reference book that's meant to be kind of like a coffee table book that's 
all of the protocols you would do for the most common. There's 60 orthopedic conditions in it, and it's they're phased by three phases, so it's way more comprehensive than I do my posts. I just can't. It's going to be amazing. Um, that's going to come out next April, and basically you can open up to any issue you have, and it will show you the exercises you essentially get in physical therapy and how to, like, how to go through the phases, how you move through them. I mean, because for years, like, social media is like a teaser. Like the things I put up are teasers. They're not. They're not graded in any way. They're not phased. It's just an example of exercises and those help people. This is just going to be like such a better version of it. And I mean, the guy that I'm writing with, I mean, the goal was to create this book that's going to be better than anything that exists currently. That's, it talks about the science of pain, the science of injury, a lot of things we've kind of briefly touched on and then protocols for different conditions. And I just, I don't know. Anyways, it's a long, April's a long ways away, but, um, just to kind of, let people know if they're looking for resources, looking for ways to kind of be able to manage things on their own. I mean, you do DIY stuff yeah. on your oh, channel. Oh, for sure. So it's kind of like, 100%. I don't want to, you know, in-person rehab is always, it's usually, I shouldn't say always, <laughs> sometimes it sucks, but usually it's better. But there are a lot of cases where people need an extra resource or other opinions or other ideas for how to move through something or they don't have access to something. And that's essentially what this book is designed to solve. So I'm just, I'm pumped about it. I just can't wait for it to come out. Um, I'm having a hard time. It's been two years of working on it and it's going to be legit. It's going to be awesome, but it's well, going to be a rehab science book. Well, I tell you so. what, that's going to be in my medicine cabinet for sure. Like a <laughs> it's many. a go, like it's just, it's set it there. I'm in a, I, as an early practitioner, I would have used it. It's yeah. going to be awesome. That's so. awesome, man. Well, man, I appreciate what you do. I appreciate the help you give to people and I appreciate how well you create this content that's so easily digestible. I don't care personally in terms of I usually watch like cool cars and, you know, cool, you know, cool, like extreme stuff. And I don't always end up being like captivated by your videos on Instagram is like, why am I watching a guy's <laughs> neck being massaged or your wife's there? I was like, but somehow I was like, oh, that's how it fixes that part. That's awesome. Yeah. Cool, man. Thanks, man. Dude, thanks for having me on. Yeah. Um, always excited. Like you said before, I rarely have opportunities. I, you're the only person I really talk to in this space. Um, I'm probably super annoying. The last time we hung out, first time we met, like I just <laughs> no. literally try to pick your brain the whole time. It's just amazing to talk to a content creator who's doing this as their full-time thing. And, to, cause like I said, that's kind of my goal is to kind of try to move to where you're at with this. Um, and so dude, it's awesome. Thanks for having me on. I can't, uh, luckily we're hanging out for the next five days yeah. and I can just be blast, beat man. you up with questions. Listen, it's going to be awesome. <laughs> I'm excited to share all my ideas because that's what I love. I love people who are hungry. Mm -hmm. I, I hate talking to people who you tell them like, hey, try this, try this. And they don't try it. Those are the DMs that I get. Hey, man, I tried YouTube. I got 10 videos. It didn't work. What should I do? And I go, you kidding me, man? 68 videos. Yeah. All right. Do 68 videos, then tell me what works. You don't have enough of a sample size to you be like. You wouldn't believe how often I think about you in that 68 videos. Yeah, 68 videos, man. <laughs> be broke for a second. <laughs> All right, brother, man. I appreciate you. Rehab Sciences. Uh, Rehab Science. Not Scientist. That one's closed. Rehab Science. Go check him out. Look for his book. And uh, we'll have to do like a video collaboration while I fuck up my back and then you <laughs> put it back in place. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye.